from the cloud a voice. This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. He was a fisherman, and not even a very good one, when the Lord showed up and made him into a fisher of people. And Pete, he's seen some things, witnessed some things he can't explain. First, it was when the teacher showed up and called him to follow. He doesn't really understand why he did it, but he left it all behind. Nets full of fish there on the seashore. He took his co-workers with him, and they followed Jesus. Then there was the episode with his mother-in-law. She was trying hard to minister to the teacher and his disciples, and she was unwell, and when the teacher touched her, she was healed. There was a time that the crowds grew so large with their bellies full, but the stories Mustard seeds and prodigal sons and wayward vineyard workers. That's what Pete liked the best. The stories. It's no wonder then, having seen all he's seen and heard all he's heard, that when the teacher asks, who do you all say that I am? It's Peter, good old Pete, who shouts, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. But it's also why, having confessed the truth of the truth, when the teacher told him and the others that he was going to die, it's Pete who rebukes him for saying so. Hey, J.C., J.C., I don't think you get it, my man. The Messiah can't die. You're here to restore all things to Israel, which is something you can't do from the grave. And do you know what Jesus said to good old Pete? Get behind me, Satan. Your head is stuck on human things, but I'm here for godly things. And now, eight days later, they're up on top of the mountain to pray. Jesus' face is transfigured. He is glowing. He is dazzling white. There are two figures, Moses and Elijah, on either side. And Pete shouts out, Lord, it's good to be here. Why don't we make some tents so that we can stay up on the mountain forever? A cloud overshadows them and from the cloud a voice this is my son he's my chosen listen to him and just as quick as the whole thing came upon them it ended and jesus sternly ordered them to say nothing to anyone about what they had seen and heard i can't wait to hear about your lunchtime conversations with the kids about that the transfiguration This is a turning point in the church year. We're moving from the season after Epiphany to the season of Lent. The church turns away from the light of the wise men coming with their gifts to the darkness of the season of introspection. Jesus turns his own blazing face toward a violent fate in Jerusalem. Not not all churches mark this occasion, this day we call transfiguration. But I think if we miss it, we miss out on the future made manifest in the present. It's a moment of what we call transcendence, where the veil is lifted and we get to see what is good and true and beautiful in the world. The transfiguration is a moment when the strange new world of the Bible becomes very strange and very new. It is a strange, strange story. So much so that when I shared it with a couple people from the church this week, this mountaintop moment, more than a few people said, I don't think I've ever heard that story before. It's kind of bizarre. And it makes sense that maybe some of us haven't heard it. This story, even among all the strange things that happen in the Bible, is pretty weird. Jesus has just rebuked Peter, called him Satan to his face, and then invites him up onto the mountain to pray. Jesus is flanked by two of the most important figures from the history of the faith. 
And it ends just as soon as it starts. And very notably, I think, this is the only time in the entirety of the Gospels that Jesus doesn't respond at all to something someone has said. Lord, I want to set up a, a motel franchise here on top of the mountain so we can stay whenever we want. And Jesus doesn't even speak to Peter. He completely ignores him. It's a weird and wonderful moment, and we can't quite wrap our heads around it. Because if we can confess, we don't know what to make of moments that we can't explain. Our default mechanism for living in the world today is by the natural and the explainable rather than the unnatural and the supernatural. The challenge of being in the world today is that we live and we don't think about the things that happen to us. We're so quick to dismiss everything away. Maybe you've been in church before and you've been hearing a song, perhaps even just two minutes ago while all the girls were singing. And maybe it brought a tear to your eye and you can't understand, why am I crying? Let me tell you, I was crying. And maybe you thought to yourself, oh, it's just dust. I'm not having an emotional response. God isn't working in the middle. I'm just, um, yeah, maybe something's in my eyes. We're so quick to brush things away when these moments of transcendence actually catch up with us. Our comprehension of things in the world today is such that we've convinced ourselves that we don't need a religious or a mystical explanation for why things happen or they don't happen. And yet, at the same time, we are equally obsessed with what I call self-justification, which is also a very mystical adventure. What I'm trying to say is we're all on journeys looking for meaning. And more often than not, we derive our sense of meaning in the world by what we can accomplish, which, if we're honest, never really amounts to much. But we keep trying and trying and trying anyway. We adapt or adopt new habits. We drop old ones. We set out to create permanence in this world, and the world runs on impermanence. We try and we try, and the harder we try, the more disappointed we are in ourselves because we don't have much to show for all of our effort. We're looking for transcendence, but even when it smacks us in the face, we don't know that it's there, which to me is odd, very odd because in church of all places, Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. And so that's why I love that Stephanie pulled up pictures for all of us to see during the children's sermon because Christian art is an endlessly fascinating phenomenon and the transfiguration has, of course, for centuries commanded the imagination of many artists. So the first image that I'd like you to see for a moment, this is Raphael's transfiguration. Raphael was a Renaissance painter. It was the last painting he created before his death. It was conceived first as an altarpiece for a cathedral in France, but over the centuries, it's made its way to a great number of museums. So much so that Mark Twain actually got to see this painting when it was in Rome. And in his journal, he wrote, I will never, ever forget Raphael's transfiguration. One, because it's supposedly the first oil painting in history. And secondly, it's just so beautiful. Now, I like it a lot because it has this great juxtaposition. It's kind of odd for church images because it doesn't just show one scene. We've got the transfiguration at the top. We've got the disciples cowering in fear, Moses, Elijah, Jesus transfigured. But if you keep reading in Luke's gospel, when they come down the mountain, after Jesus has said, don't say anything to anyone, there's a young boy and he's sick and he's asked to be healed. And so Jesus does. So Raphael, he juxtaposes these two things together. But even in the midst of the darkness, the pain and the suffering of the world, the transfigured Christ is still there to make all the difference in the world. 
The next one comes from an artist named Jason Cianelli. He is an abstract artist. This is a modern painting. I love this one too because just like with Raphael's, it shows this juxtaposition. There's this one pinpoint of light. And from that one pinpoint, everything is being changed. Above, below, east, west, what happens to Jesus has consequences and ramifications, not just for the disciples, not just for Jesus, but for the entire cosmos. But my favorite is this one. This is a modern icon made by a woman named Ivanka Demchuk. She's my age. She lives in Ukraine, and she's part of a group of young artists who are trying to make icons today. I think she completed this last year. It, like the others, shows Jesus and the figures of Moses and Elijah, and we have the disciples cowering down here in fear. If you are able to zoom, you can look it up online. If you zoom in, it's kind of mixed media. You see all these things that are going on. You can only really appreciate it by looking very closely at it. But what I love about it is it really conveys the sense that what's happening above is so completely different than what's happening below. It helps us to remember that when we ever encounter God, we will probably be afraid because God is God and we are not, which is just another way of saying we have no business getting close to God. We're not worthy of it in the slightest. We can never even achieve it on our own, but God won't ever stop coming to us. That's the good news of the gospel. The transfiguration, it's one of those moments that we just can't wrap our heads around. It's why we need art and we need music and we need literature to, to kind of put flesh on something that we cannot conceive in our minds because it transcends all things we think we know about what is true in the world. Because without the supernatural, without transcendence, without mystery, the church becomes nothing more than a country club or the next best self-improvement clinic, or a subpar social services agency. And to be clear, there's nothing wrong with wanting to have more fellowship, or trying to better yourself, or providing needs to the last, least lost, little and dead. But if that's all we have, if that's all the church has to show for herself, then we have no business calling ourselves the church. Because there will always be other institutions that will help bring us better friends, or help us get from where we are to where we want to be, or to make real substantive changes in the world, but they don't have the one thing that we do have. Jesus Christ and him crucified. The wonderful and the weird witness of the transfiguration is that the only thing we're told to do is listen. Listen. From this point forward, Jesus is going to do what Jesus is going to do. He's going to go into Jerusalem. He's going to grab the tables in the temple. He's going to flip them over. He's going to tell stories about treasure buried in a field. He's going to give them proclamations about the signs of the times. And when push comes to shove, Jesus is going to mount the hard wood of the cross, regardless of all of our goodness or our lack of goodness. We can point to all these moments, these bewildering details on top of the mountain. But the most important thing of all is that it is timeless. It is a moment in the past that speaks to us in our present about the future. That's why Jesus says, don't tell anyone what you have seen. I'm giving you hints about your lunchtime conversation. Because this moment is made intelligible only by the end of the story. It only makes sense in the light of the resurrection. The disciples are told to not say anything because they don't get it. And they won't get it until Jesus comes back. They witness something remarkable, something inexplicable, and it's not even the resurrection, it's just transfiguration. 
Today, we are like those disciples, and we are called to live according to the wondrous nature of this. Don't want to listen to Jesus. It's all good and fine for Jesus to tell us to spread a little more love in the world. We can all get on board with that. It's another thing entirely when Jesus has the gall to say, pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. We'd rather listen to ourselves than to Jesus because we're addicted to being in control, or at least we think we're in control. In Psalm 2, there's this great moment when the psalmist describes how God responds to those who think they're in control. And do you know how God responds? God laughs at us. It's humbling to be laughed at by anyone. But when God laughs at us, it's another thing entirely. But perhaps we need to hear God laughing at us. Particularly when we wake and sleep believing we have to make the world come out right in the end. The world has already come out right. We know the future in the presence. The tomb is empty. Jesus is resurrected from the dead. We don't have to be the hope of the world because Jesus is the hope of the world. The only thing we have to do is act accordingly. And that's why Lent beckons us every year. That's why Christians for centuries have marked this liturgical season that is coming because it reminds us of the inconvenient truth. No one makes it out of this life alive. Trust me, no one likes being told you're dust and to dust you shall return. Preachers don't enjoy saying those words when we mark people's foreheads with them, but they're true. We won't make it out of this life alive. But like the Lord in the tomb, God refuses to leave it that way. We are a people who are desperate to be in control in a world that is out of control. And if we're honest with ourselves, we can scarcely imagine what it would look like to live according to the light of the transfiguration because it leaves us quaking and bewildered and we don't know what it means. But if we don't shine Jesus' light, if we don't act as a mirror for the light that shines in the world, if we can't reflect the glory of the one transfigured, then the world has no light to see that not all is darkness. We are, we are not the hope of the world, but the hope of the world has come in Jesus, and all we need to do is listen. So we offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.